Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn. Uh, joined as I am every week by media executive Grail Hallett and OTB producer and Syria uh, specialista Sam Griswold. Today on Over the Wall, we catch up with St. John's head coach Dave Mazur. I played against Dave in college and in the indoor league before we went on to and continues to have a stellar uh, coaching career. Uh, I'm in Washington, D.C. today where the flags are at half mast to pay respects to the great Senator Bob Dole, great American type of legislator, type of uh, person we use a little bit more of these days. So I am uh, I'm here. Uh, on my way down to Cary, North Carolina, to take uh, to take in the men's final four, an event which, as we've talked about here on the show before, I believe is hugely undervalued, not only by the NCAA, but by the uh, the media in general. Uh, the College Cup this Friday, uh, December tenth, Clemson versus Notre Dame at six p.m., Georgetown versus Washington at 8.30 p.m. Both matches are airing on ESPNU, which once again is a statement about the priority of college soccer or lack thereof at ESPN, one of my old employers, but hey, at least it's on cable, a cable channel and not a streaming service. All right, so guys, let's get Dave right in the mix here. He's the head coach of the St. John's University men's soccer team. He was a 1996 NCAA Division I Coach of the Year, and he led the Red Storm to the 1996 NCAA Championship. Coach Dave Mazur, welcome back to OTB, pal. How are you? Good, Kevin. Great to be back. Thank you, and hello to Sam as well. Yeah, so I'm glad I have you on this week because of the College Cup and all. We want to get right to talking about some of that. But before we uh, get going on that, I always ask the guys what they're over uh, on Over the Ball today. So uh, feel free to jump in. Grail, what are you over today on OTB? Yeah, so I'm, I'm just over. I was watching uh, Champions League the last couple of days. And in the uh, Porto Atletico match, there were some there was some roughhousing going on off the ball. And, of course, the ref caught, <laughs> the, ref caught the guys fighting back. Not the instigator, but... Right. And, and so what ended up happening is in the space of three minutes, two guys got red carded based on the ref seeing the, the aggrieved party react. And instead of going to VAR and figuring it out, neither there should have been uh, no red cards. He just red carded both the guys. So, again, that's why VAR is there. Please use it. Refs. Well, actually, I don't know if that is why VAR is there. The stuff that's happening off the ball even. Um, but they certainly they should use it. They should certainly use it for that purpose. Or yeah. I even think about retroactively sort of saying, you know, because look, as American players, we always like hated when guys are just rolling on the ground 20 times and it turns out they never even got hit. Uh, yeah. You know, they have what, 16 cameras there. You've got all the angles. Do it retroactively. Red card or yellow card somebody for faking an injury. Well yeah, both guys grabbed their faces like they had basically had a, you know, had a uh, saber. Good. Hit hit through it. It was ridiculous. You kind of struggled with that weapon, didn't you? There, I did. I did. I, I don't use. I don't use the word saber very often. I don't think anybody uses the word saber very often. So. All right, uh, Dave. We got any thoughts on that? VAR retroactive. You know. Yeah, I think like so. In college, the VAR can be used to to turn back a goal, and it can be used to go back and look at maybe a potential red card, yellow card scenario. Right, someone gets hit off the ball. And I would reference the Switzerland, I believe it was Italy game. And Switzerland was playing well. And it was a red card to Switzerland. It was on a slide tackle. And to me, it was actually even a legitimate slide tackle. It ended up being a red card. So my take a little bit on the VAR is the VAR should be in charge of the referee, not the referee in charge of VAR. Oh, so you should have your more yeah. experienced person in the box and he should be in charge. So when the VAR really gets a good look at it, he could go down and say, okay, 
that's clearly not a red, it's clearly not a yellow, it's a nothing move forward. So you kind of take the uh, the impetus of, you know, I'm the referee, I called it, and somebody else questions it, then I want to overrule, and, you know, right. you make, take the ego out of it. So you really set the ego up in the correct proportionality. The right. senior guy is in the VAR, he's making the critical decisions. The referee is making initial decisions, which is going to be corrected and totally in control by the VAR. I agree with That's, that, guys. Do you? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's one of my points. And Tech, I, yeah, I like technology is there. I mean, use yep. it. And, and the ref can't possibly catch every little battle that's going no, on. No, he has it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and especially since they've changed how they're calling things. So back in the day, you know, penalty kick had to be, a, you know, a fairly legitimate tackle in a box that was right. leading more. Now a penalty kick is, you know, it incidentally hits your hand. You know, I, I, I might have pushed someone it gets a little, it gets very dodgy. And I, I think that's my next rule. I think we should look at that. There should be two levels of penalty kick. One that would go mm -hmm. to the top of the D outside of the box and you get a free kick and one that would go to the spot. Oh, uh, interesting. Think, yeah. Traditionalist grill Hallett will howl. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't, I don't mind that. I don't mind that. Usually just don't make the goal bigger, Dave. All right. No, all right, but, no we, we got that. We got, we're not making a goal bigger. And I guess the <laughs> third one, that I think is very vital to, to the development of our game. So offsides, we can see if we're watching an EPL or a game, they have this technology and they can catch right. one hundredth of an inch or one hundredth of a millimeter. And it's just not appropriate. You know, the game isn't played that way. We don't have that technology in all the fields. So to me, there needs to be space between the defender and the forward to call offsides. Mm -hmm. So you would limit probably five to ten offsides every game. The game would be open. Defenders would have to drop. There'd be less physical encounters. And there'd be more of this like, oh, you know, like off to the races. Oh, I'm in behind. I'm in behind because yeah. it'd be harder to get in behind. And you could you'd see a lot more of the development and skill in the game. So I think if we were able to correct, you know, those three functionalities of the game right now, you'd see a much better game. And, uh, you know, I think it would even be more, you know, more attractive to the world and, I guess the last point is that open up scoring a little bit too. Absolutely. The last point is that most sports evaluate the rules and make slight adjustments. Soccer has been a traditional sport. It really hasn't made that many adjustments over the course of 40 years. So right. I like just, this. You've thought about this. I think this was your, uh, your thesis paper when you're getting your master's at Montclair state. I think so. no, no, <laughs> very good. That, that was actually on leadership and coaching. Uh, all right. Well, you know, I think it's interesting to watch VAR. You know, we bring it up for um, sort of physical stuff off the ball, which, you know, boy, Dave, and all the games we played in, there was always that Sunday league stuff happening off the ball. And there was no, you know, no way to be held people accountable. Seems like referees do have that now for penalty kicks and offsides. But I, I do think we should also use it for uh, that chippy. Uh, cheap stuff that happens off the ball or, or, you know, over dramatizing stuff. What I think is interesting is <clears throat> whenever a PK is taken, all the players run to the referee and I've noticed the referee now, like, and not in all the days we played, no one ever reverses a call, right? Generally, uh, unless with the VAR now referees are definitely taking the back seat saying, yeah, well, wait, I'm checking it. They go to their ear and they say, I'm, I'm checking it out. So um, I'm talking about after a game, could you, re-rack the, the tape and watch everything and say, no, that guy should get a red card retroactively or a yellow card. You guys in favor of that at all? I stopped the Dave. panel. 
Dave, I we don't care we what they think. I think we have the technology to go live with all that. And I think that yeah. can be done live. So it's if it is going to be impactful, it's impactful at the point. Right. But I do think that diving should be addressed in terms of fines. So I think teams and players should be fined a significant amount for diving in the box or diving in general. Mm-hmm. And I think that would also curb a lot of the, you know, and when you talk to people, whether they're soccer people or just sports people in general, you know, the one thing that they're most upset about our sport is that all the acting and the, the carrying yeah. on that was on the field, right? And right. so that would also put another, you know, add that to rule number four of my suggestion box to improve the game. Yeah, that's what Ali Moreno back at ESPN used to say. Well, it's cultural. I'm like, well, we don't like that particular culture <laughs> in this country. So, uh, all right. Uh, so, uh, Sam, what are you over and over the ball today? Yeah, uh, mine's more of a cultural comment. I'm going to sound, uh, there you go. once nice again, probably like a real snob. Uh, but I'm, <laughs> I'm done with people, you know, referring to teams from cities and potentially entire countries that they've never even been to uh, as we um, you know, it's a conversation I overheard with guys I play, you know, talking about Chelsea and Arsenal using terms like you guys and we. And my point is, I don't even do that when I'm talking about, you know, the Boston Red Sox, a team I grew up 10 miles away from and have gone to see since I was five years old. Why are we all of a sudden going to do that when we're talking about places we've never even been? Dude, man, uh, people, these are their lives. You see these Red Sox Yankee games, people are just. They live and breathe it. You know, it's unbelievable. Look at Grail. He wears all those shirts every time we're on the air. No, I wasn't, I wasn't playing today. I used to do a joke on stage. I took my daughter, because it's a true story. I took my daughter to a Red Sox-Yankee game at Yankee Stadium. And the guy in front of me had the entire uniform on. Like, the, you know, like not the kid wearing the Yankees uniform, but a, a man, a grown man wearing Yankees uniform. And I'm like thinking, and he's drinking. I think he thinks if he gets enough people get hurt, he might get in the game and he gets hammered enough. So I know people just live and breathe this stuff. So, so uh, Sam, is your is your beef that it that it's as if these guys are almost like part of the they're actually on the squad or something? I, I don't know. It just it seems like they're going a little over the top to prove that they have a connection to these teams. Yeah. Like my my point is, you know, okay, fine, you're gonna say that if you went to Liverpool, say where you've probably never been in your life, and we're talking to some actual Liverpool fans, would you say we when you were like confronted with actual people who kind of live and breathe it every I think, day? I, I think don't they know. would I think they would say we. I think people yeah. from Liverpool would say we. But you're that, a Red Sox fan from Boston, but doesn't say we. So I think But do you just, do you refer to teams like here in the US that you've grown up your whole life liking as we? No, I don't think we do that. No, no, I refer to myself as stud. <laughs> there you go. As, no, so yeah. all right. Um I think you know what bothers me though, as a former player how people think they should be involved in the game, whether it's throwing shit on the field at players, it's like so inappropriate. It just, or, or pitch invaders, all that stuff. That just shows you how out of it people are sometimes like, you know, like you say with the Mexico fans, just throwing, you know, things at people on the, you know, when they're taken at the corner flag, it's like, you're out of well, the game. You're not a part of it. It's but funny, anybody, anybody who played the game would be very disinclined to do any of that. Any person who played, who's a fan, I mean, like a fans generally would be less inclined than somebody who never played the game and has just been a supporter their whole life. I guess, because I think, look, Maze, you might want to jump in here because I tell you, I have sat in stands where people yell out the most inane, stupid shit. You're like, what are they talking about? Like, and they're yelling at a coach or a player and stuff. And you're like, you can tell they've never played the game. It's just horrible to sit there. It's like a little knowledge is dangerous. 
a little knowledge is definitely dangerous. I think when you look at like, you know, these great big clubs, whether you're look, looking in Europe, but the fan and the passion is so great that, you know, the songs, the way they carry on. And usually it's, it's, it's pretty good and appropriate, you know, minus, you know, some of the little, little harassments that they have. I think it's, it's, it, you know, when you see it in, in, in the right way, it's very, very good, you know, and the players love it and they talk about it. So that's, that's a good part. I do think the the thing when when fans personalize it and call we all the time, that also bothers me. It aggravates me because they're trying right. to personalize their involvement in the team instead of looking at it from outside looking in. They want to be inside looking out mm-hmm. all the time, right. and they want to take credit for it. And you know that's where the obsession and the craziness maybe gets. Yeah, yeah. Where were where were you at the seven a.m. rum during preseason? You know, where we were all getting up, man. You know. So cool. All right. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit about your, you know, you had a coach during a pandemic uh, this season. Talk a little bit how, how your season went this year and, and how difficult that was. Uh, some of the challenges that you had to face. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I guess first and foremost, the pandemic was a little bit easier this, this uh, fall because of the vaccinations than it was last fall. And then in the spring, last fall, we were just able to train Then last spring we had a season. And during last spring, we lost some games because our team, ended up getting some significant COVID cases. So we had to miss three or four games and it hurt our season. And, you know, therefore it was nice that we had a season in the spring, although it was a shortened season, it, we weren't able to fully get it. So right. come around yeah. to this fall, um, you know, most everybody vaccinated, if 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 not everybody, um, and it made for a lot easier time for our season. There weren't many outbreaks, if at all, and, you know, everybody stayed in, in connection. It was more of a traditional season. So we certainly uh, appreciated that. It was more than, it would seem more than normal, you know, minus wearing masks on a bus and masks when we traveled and things like that. But it was, it was excellent. Did, um, did you, did you get a chance to, some of the positives, did you get a chance to work with some players more, help them develop, uh, you know, cause there was more downtime or it seemed so like, and guys get another season. So getting another season has complicated the whole, you know, the whole recruiting, process yeah. recruiting and, and more kids involved in soccer. And it's kind of, it's bad for the kid, you know, for the kids that are seniors and juniors just entering, you know, and it's good for the kids yeah. that were in it because they can extend their, their careers. So it's just another one that everybody's facing right now. And it's adding to more graduate students playing and more, you know, teams having older players on it, you know, right. and then you add in what is now the new transfer portal where kids can just put their name in and, and jump from team to team at any moment. Um, really? I didn't know about that. I didn't know. Did, yeah, Kevin, you have to be up port- to date. So in wow, college, yeah. college sports now in all sports. So you used to have to get a one-time exemption. Now kids can just put themselves in a transfer portal. So in our transfer portal, just in soccer alone, there's over a thousand names in it. Wow. That's so, amazing. That, that puts a lot of, you get pissed at your coach one day, you go back to your computer and put yourself well, it, in the portal. Yeah, it's correct. So it, it becomes a scenario that, um, you know, it makes a very delicate scenario in many different directions. So it's wow. kind of changed the face of college athletics in many ways. All right. So, you know, you've been to the big dance before, um, you know, we know Coach Noonan's down there again this year. Uh, it's it's an interesting tournament because you got to play two games within 48 hours if you're successful. Many of the games are, are you know, go to extra time. Uh, how do you prepare the guys? I mean, you know, for something like that, you know, so as you head I, down I there. Think, 
Yep. So I think in general, most of the teams have tried to maybe have a sequence like that, whether it's in their tournament, whether it's a three-day layoff, a two-day. So that's one of the things we always talked in the Big East, that the tournament kind of prepares you if you're lucky enough to get to that stage, right, where you maybe play Thursday, Sunday, or Friday, Sunday. So that's one of the things that 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 will help these teams prepare. Um, and I think just the rigors of getting there. So Clemson plays in the ACC, Georgetown plays in the – in the, in the in our Big East, which had is, had a great season this year. Washington plays in a back 12. So those were the three top conferences this year in the country. Notre Dame's in the ACC. So those four teams come from the three best conferences in the country. They've had to play tough games every week in and week out, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday. Um, so they're prepared for what's ahead of them, you know, because they've been doing it. And it's making sure your team is as fresh as it can be and confident as it can be and motivated as it can be. So all those things have to, to take place. And I think you see over time, teams that first get there struggle to win because they're happy to be there. And so you have to have a sense of your team and of the drive behind the team uh-huh. and your focus on hopefully getting the end product, which is the national championship. So I think you've got experienced coaches there um, that have all had highly successful programs and have been part of successful programs. So I don't think that'll be an issue for any of these teams. Yeah, because, you, you know, you've got two things. You're trying to rotate players in the first game, hoping to get to the second game. I, I don't know. It's just a, it'd be a real uh, coaching conundrum, um, especially. I, I just think it's a waste that the two games in 48 hours, too. It's yeah. kind of a bummer. It's tough, but I, I don't think you see any coaches rotating players. I think they're going to stick to what they normally do. Get the and, win. Um, I'm sure they have, you know, a, somewhat of a rotation and substitution pattern they use, and I'm sure they'll stick with it. You know, they need to win that first game. Yeah, plus these guys are uh, 20 years old, so, man, you can just rejuvenate pretty quickly. Grail? Yeah, Dave, um, historically it feels like College Cup is tends to be a very defensive-minded affair. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not where it's about preventing goals as opposed to scoring goals. I'm just curious, is that an oversimplification or do you think that that actually happens going into the tournament? It's more about just kind of clamping down and trying to get that odd chance here and there versus maybe playing more of a, you know, front foot attacking style. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a really an interesting question. I mean, it really goes back to, I think, each coach and their philosophy. And, you know, I think it, it depends on how you're built. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's a commonality that says defense wins championships in all sports. Um, I, and I think that's, you know, probably in some circles partly correct. I know in the case of Georgetown, who's a very good defensive team, but they're extraordinarily good with the ball and they go forward very well. You know, Clemson also has some really good attacking components to their team and have played a wide open brand of soccer. And I think, you know, Washington and Notre Dame, from what I can gather and see, are strong, technical, athletic, um, but also very organized uh, in how they play. And I think Notre Dame won the ACC this year under Coach Chad Riley. They were picked to come in last and ended up first. And they've had some, you know, watching them play. And Chad worked for me for one year at St. John's after he graduated from, from Notre Dame. Then he went back and coached under Coach Bobby Clark. 
Um, so there's an instant interesting story behind that, but I think they're an excellent team in every, every respect. They're both, they're great defensively. They're good offensively. They have great composure and they have good individual and team chemistry to win games. So I think it's going to be, uh, any team can win this, this, this college cup. I, I can't really see that there's a favorite, you know? So, you know, you've been, you've been in the game for a long time at the college level, um, changes that you've seen in, in the game itself. Um, you know, I know one thing, Dave, when we were playing, uh, we were sort of proud of having American players on, on a pitch. Um, you know, Clemson back then had been, um, you know, all foreign players. I remember uh, then had UConn had just American players. It was this sort of feeling and to see how things have changed where a lot of American players then started to fill out the rosters and then slowly, it seemed like um, more foreigners are back into the mix now. What uh, can you explain that, and, and how has that affected the game collegiately? So the game, the game has changed and grown, and so part of this, you know, when we were in the in the final in '96 and in '95 when Wisconsin won, there was twenty thousand people at Richmond, excited, happy to be there. It was yeah. great crowds. You know, Jeff Gettler and his crew did an incredible job at, at really promoting and marketing the Final Four. But since then, we've had MLS come into the picture and do well. And then we've had Don Garber and his crew at MLS, who's done an amazing job of expanding the league, making more prominent, building stadiums, creating opportunities in the professional level. Now we're looking at an MLS, too. We're looking at the USL. So we have now a tiered system where a lot of players are going. And then we have the overseas scenario where a lot of kids are going overseas a lot earlier to try to see if they can maybe make be a pro or somehow work the work so the opportunities back to the 80s and 90s have increased maybe tenfold and so what's happened is a lot of college programs most of them are funded now so even some of the leagues back in the day kevin a lot of the teams had two three scholarships compared to 9.9 now most programs in almost every league have a full amount of scholarships and are supposed to win. It's more like a basketball mentality. Right. So you can look across the board and see all these teams in every league. So if you're looking at the, the, you know, the big 10, the ACC, the Patriot league, even the colonial athletic, every conference is funded and expects their teams to win. And so there's been an influx of foreign players and foreign companies that have been marketing and promoting players to come to the States because they actually cherish the opportunity to get an education and continue their soccer career. And in some ways, our college system doesn't exist anywhere in the world. And so it's a phenomenal opportunity for anyone, whether it's a domestic kid or a kid from South America, Central America, Asia, Europe, anywhere in the world are really excited about the opportunity to come to the States, have a great experience and play a high level soccer. We've seen that Dave, in both our experience, our collegiate experience, that, that the education system in the United States changes people's lives. They, they come over here to play soccer, but they get an education and they get jobs and they stay and they raise families yep. and they're part of the, uh, part of the, the infrastructure here though. So it's, it's been, just been interesting to watch, uh, watch that development. Grail. 
Uh, go ahead, Sam. I know oh, you got one. Oh, Sam. Yeah, yeah David. As Kevin was mentioning at the top, you know, we sort of feel on this show like the College Cup is a little bit underutilized as maybe college soccer is in general in terms of you know media presentation. Uh, and you touched on this a little bit in terms of it getting lost in the shuffle with everything else that's going on. But I, I'm curious what what steps you think might help the tournament to stand out a little bit more. You know, I mean, I think you know. I guess there's a couple things, but, you know, probably one of the things that, you know, uh, Sasha has been working on at University of Maryland is trying to have this um, comprehensive season uh, to have a two semester season where we're playing one game a week and, you know, culminating with our championship ending in the spring. Right. I think one of the issues we've found is that football is so dominant here during this time of the year and then men's basketball also begins now so for our coverage on television is somewhat limited in the time that we're running our championships and so that becomes a real big issue i believe and i think us finishing the championships in may and june would really capture a better television market it would capture better weather it would in you know increase a lot more fan participation and it would also build you know, this cumulative effect where you start in September, you break right before Thanksgiving, you start back in March and you finish in like the beginning of June. Yeah. And so you'd have a, a journey just like you do in most sports. And I think it was better for the student athletes when the student athletes were questioned about it. Over 90 percent of Division One athletes on the boys side wanted to, you know, wanted that approach because they're used to it. You know, it's different now club soccer, club sports in general is year round. So if you play lacrosse, you're playing year round. You play baseball, you're playing year round. You play soccer, you're playing year round. So when kids come now to college and say, wow, you have a three month season. Yeah. That's yeah. a change for them. Yeah. Right. And so I think it makes a lot of sense to, to make those adjustments, not only for our sport, but I think it would make sense for most sports mm -hmm. to be able to spread out the games and to make it a little bit more, more competitive for both semesters yeah some sports are more arduous than others sam <laughs> yeah to, just to follow up on that dave with the split season idea um as you know we have the mls playoffs going on right now there's sort of general debate about these these one game playoffs after such a long season and i'm curious if there's any talk about actually changing the tournament format with the split season or if it would be kept the same with the single elimination knockout I, I think it's really just trying to get this double season. We're fighting mm -hmm. a huge bureaucracy in the NCAA. And so just trying to do one thing that's a major thing would be an accomplishment. And I think we'd have to look at that down the line. Mm -hmm. And I think I've thought about the MLS and I think that, you know, what happened to New England, you know, losing, uh, you know, by one goal after having such a great season that you might consider that, you know, if, you know, that the, the team that was, you know, the first or second seed, if they lost or tied the first game, would get a chance to play again. So you'd, you'd kind of maybe make the odds a little tougher for the team that's behind them to win. So you might have to win and tie if you're behind them, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're, the, right. if you're the front runner, you just need to win one, right? Mm. Or tie like both. That. You tie both, you still go through. Yeah, yeah so yeah. almost like a winner's bracket kind of deal. I like that, yeah. I don't know if it's the winner's bracket. It's just kind of like you may need, if you're, if you're the team behind, you need four points, mm -hmm. you know, right. instead of just a win, you need yeah. four ah. points. So you need to win and then get a tie. Mm. Yeah. Grail. 
Yeah. So Dave, just getting back to the coaching part of this upcoming weekend, um, you know, I'm sure the players are, are mentally and physically exhausted at this point from a coaching standpoint, is it all about just keeping the message as simple as possible and hammering home the basics or do you insert tactical stuff into it based on the competition that could actually get the players a little bit confused at this point. So Grail, for sure, it's about the tactical end of things. You know, first, I don't think the players are tired. The players are super excited and super energetic to be where they are. They've earned their way there. And each coach, I'm sure, has rested them and kind of coordinated through. I'm sure some players are carrying injuries, which is always difficult. So you're going to have to have the scenario of some depth but I think tactically knowing what you're up against is vital at every stage of the, the game. So if you're playing Clemson versus Notre Dame or Washington versus Georgetown, every game will have a little different, little different tactical adjustment that each coach probably needs to be aware of. Right. Um, Cause you don't want to be surprised. You don't want your team to be surprised. So I think, you know, you want to keep it simple, but you want to keep it tactically appropriate for who you're playing against. Okay. So, so Dave, you know, it's interesting. You're talking about the development leagues and about coaching. It seemed like all of us had that one coach when we were young who sort of turned us on to the game. And then a lot of players developed in college. Uh, that's why I, I always find it so interesting when, you know, my uh, girlfriend's uh, niece got a, scholar, a scholarship offer her sophomore year in high school. And I was like, boy, you, you know, I don't think I reached puberty at that age. It's like, you know, how do you take a gamble like that? Uh, what are you looking for? But also, has the skill level changed? Has the way of teaching young players changed that come to you in college now that came to you 25 years ago? Is there a big difference? Yes, there's a little bit of a difference, right? So at times, there may be technically a little more individually adept because there's a lot of individual stuff done at a younger age level. Right. But sometimes for big picture things and seeing the game, in a big in a big picture way, meaning understanding all the components of it, there's probably less knowledge today than there was many years ago. Really? Because there was more free play, more open play. There was more, you know, kind of cutting edge creative players at times. Interesting. 25, 30 years ago, because mm-hmm. you really had to want to play if you wanted yeah. to be good. So you had to go out and play. Here, you know, most of the kids go to practice to three times a week. They go to a team, you know, academy team or somebody, and they'll train them in a very, you know, um, you know, more of a technical oriented way and maybe won't do enough individual training, you know, whether it's a side volley or turning with a ball in your chest or, you know, really understanding, you know, the different parameters of a game. Sometimes there's a little bit less of that as you move forward here. Oh, I think, you know, that's a big component, you know, certainly technically there's some more better technical players that are around, but it's like, okay, how do they use the technique? Mm -hmm. And the other factor is you had a lot of players that became good soccer players that were multi-sport athletes. So judging air balls, using their body in the correct way. Um, I remember playing some guys who played hockey were very good soccer players because they could use their body really well, right? Yeah, and so those little things get lost a little bit because most kids now are one sport athletes from the time they're eight, nine, and 10. 
mm-hmm. and they missed out on a lot of a lot of a lot of components that they might get from being a, a dual sport athlete. You know, it's interesting you talk about the big picture because sometimes kids have or players have such great individual skill but cannot see the big picture. And I was telling a story about playing some pickup games in Manhattan Beach, California, where these Brazilian guys are playing barefoot. Unbelievable. But all they're into is just megging people. And, th- you know, th- then they'd meg me twice and then you'd win the ball and go and score a goal. And we'd, you know, they'd lose five zip, but they didn't care because they, you know, cry, you know, to change in, uh, crossing the ball or anything where it wasn't part of their game. It was like, I want to meg you because I got all this skill. So it's like, I used to say to them, guys, pick up your head. Otherwise you might as well be playing hacky sack for God, for God's sakes. You know? Hey, so, um, you know, I, America has always been a leader in so many coaching uh, strategies, tactics, techniques, and stuff. Uh, and we're, we're seeing, you know, more success overseas. Uh, Jesse Marsh has done quite well, uh, but he's been let go after a, a, a poor start over there. Um, what are your thoughts on Jesse and his journey so far? I mean, Jesse's, t- you know, taken an incredible journey, right, to go overseas, leave Red Bulls. And, you know, had a great career even pri- prior to Red Bulls, you know, both as a national team player, played at Princeton, um, you know, went through, played in MLS, and then has moved on to coaching and done extraordinarily well. Right. And so his journey is admired by all of us coaches, you know, and his ability to put himself out there and go across, you know, through the Red Bull organization, right, to uh, to Austria and then to Germany, right, to Leipzig, and uh, has done really, really well. And I think his journey as far as a coach is going to continue. And I think one of the nice stories is that Chris Armas, who's a New York guy here, was on mm-hmm. our national team, played at Adelphi University, very close here, has just been hired at Man United, you know, through the same journey, right, going through the Red Bull organization and is now – going to be uh, one of the assistant managers of Man United. I think and Jesse so, might be headed there too. I think Jesse I think may be going a, as well. I think they yeah. may be teaming up. I mean, it's just phenomenal, right? Great. So it, it, you know, breaks down barriers. And, you know, of course, Bob Bradley was probably the first guy to do it, right? Was the mentor to, to Jesse for sure. Yeah. You know, and Bob, after, I guess, went over to Egypt and then to Norway and then to France and then to England and then back here and now he's back in Toronto. So you know, a great pioneer for us to go overseas. And, you know, you can't mention Bob without mentioning Bruce Arena, who has taken over MLS again. And he almost did it, man. He almost did it. He won the supporter shield, but and as useful as ever, you know, Bruce does an incredible job. And, you know, we were fortunate enough to honor Bruce at our New York City soccer gala, Kevin. So we got to introduce you guys to that. Yeah, right I didn't get invited. Pandemic, we had Bob Lee and um, and 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 Bruce Arena as our city honorees, and we try to honor the past and present of New York City soccer nice. to really show how it intertwines from people who grew up in our area, which Bruce grew up right here in on Long Island. And Brooklyn boy, Boston. wasn't he? Is he a Brooklyn uh, boy or Long Island boy? Long Island, right? Yeah, all right. And then you know uh, Bob Lee, who was from. Uh, Bloomfield, New Jersey, went to Seton Hall and ended up having a a 40 year career, you know, announcing soccer for ESPN. I know. So that was a wonderful occasion, but Bruce certainly has done so much for our game. So those are great coaches. And that may bring us to the college cup where one of the great coaches of, of uh, college soccer history, Bobby Clark, who coached it, Dartmouth and Stanford and then Notre Dame won a national championship at Notre Dame. His two assistant coaches, when they would play in the Big East, were Brian Weiss 
Yeah. And Jamie Clark. So those two will be playing each other. And That's Chad great. Riley was also an assistant there after Jamie moved, after I think Brian moved on, but also played there when those guys were coaching. So those three of them are in there. So our dear friend, Mike Noonan, you know, is being outnumbered there by, yeah, by the Clark, uh, Clark and company. Coach Clark's pro <laughs> protégés. Yeah. So Noonan's got a lot, lot to live up to there. They're ganging up on Noons. Well, you, but, you know, this, you know, this is a I'm, great I'm point sure. though, Dave, that, you know, you, you not only shape young people's lives as players, but, um, you know, the good coaches also, uh, you know, mentor younger people who want to continue and, and, uh, and, and coach in the game. I, I always tell the story about you, uh, Nick O'Shea, Mike Noonan, you guys read the game differently and I just could maybe execute. And I would always ask Noonan or O'Shea, what, what's going on here? Help me out. Break it down. Uh, I think a coach's mind is, is definitely different the way you, you look at it. You, you couple that with passion. And then, um, and you know, you, you, how many guys, Dave, um, you know, come back to you year after year that the college, it was a huge part of their experience and it sort of got them through, got them a degree, learned delayed gratification and, 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 you know, uh, having teammates that you're working for. It's uh, it's all great lessons. So it's an incredible responsibility as a coach, isn't it? So, I mean, I think one of the things that is been is special of being a college student athlete is all the things you have to accomplish. So you have to go to class, you have to show up at practice, you have to go to study all, you have to, you know, be fit. You have to, you know, understand what the coach wants. So you go from being this individual, right, talented individual into, you know, blending into a team and then understanding other things just than the sport. You know, you meet other athletes, you meet other people, you take classes, you start to learn about, you know, life, life. bigger than soccer. Mm -hmm. And then you make decisions. A lot of those decisions, at least in our group, they want to continue to play, but not always. And if they do, then they're going to circle back and do something else. So it opens up your eyes and it opens up your eyes to maybe being challenged for the first time in your life. And when you're challenged, how do you respond? And we had a slogan, it's never a straight road to the top. Mm -hmm. So you got to be able to deal with the bumps in a road. And a lot of the kids, the one thing that scares me is, you know, they're going to be trying to sign a lot of 17, 18 year old kids. And those kids aren't ready for the bumps in a road. Right. Not ready for idle time. So when you have idle time, you're going to misuse that time and you're not going to progress as best you can. So the NHL used to just send their kids and nobody went to college. Now the NHL is invested in college hockey because they found the kids that go to college are better prepared for the NHL. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Signs kids early. But they found that the kids that go three years to college probably do better than the kids that they sign early. Wow. So there is a real developmental side that goes beyond sport, but it goes to your personal development and your being able to have your time occupied and be productive and hopefully get a mentor that can guide you in the right direction. And certainly one of the more gratifying things about being a coach for a while is when the players come back and they remember the little stories, they remember the ups and downs, they remember a lot of the losses and, um, you know, they still burn, but they're they're still part of the history of what they went through and they enjoy it and they remember the victories and it's uh, and it's it, and it shapes their life to what they do on a day to day basis. You know, as far as organizing their time, being optimistic, right. 
being able to deal with some of the ups and downs they face in general life. You know, it's funny going to alumni games, guys talk about the the years they play, they cherish them. And I think the lessons that the younger ones try to learn, the kids who are still in the mix, is like cherish these years, appreciate what's going, going on. Uh, and enjoy yourself and uh, be the best you can be. All right. So Dave, this has been great. I want to put you on the spot though, because you put, you know, all the coaches who are in the final four, you know, all the teams are in the final four. Let's get uh, your prediction for who you think, how you think it's going to go down. As I said earlier, I think the teams are all so close, right? So, you know, being in the big East and, you know, certainly rooting for Georgetown to come away with a Big East championship and a Georgetown nice. championship would be yeah. Coach Weiss's second championship. And I would think any of the teams would 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 be able to win. You know, Washington's played really well all year and are difficult to break down. And, you know, I think Notre Dame, for their run, I think they've got, you know, it goes back to, to Grail's question earlier. I think they got like out of the last 13 results, 11 are shutouts. Wow. So they're not giving away many goals. So they may be a tough team to beat. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I really struggle to make a prediction. I'll have to stick with Georgetown and go with my heart and my head. <laughs> he's got a very, he's got a very technically good team and a very good defensive team. And uh, they know how to play really attractive soccer and win big matches. All right. That was very diplomatic. I, I, that's why you're the head of a big program. Because uh, <laughs> diplomacy. Hey, Coach Mazur, uh, we appreciate uh, you joining us on Over the Ball. Uh, keep up the good work and uh, we'd love to talk to you again uh, down the road. Always great to share some time with you guys. You have a uh, great insight into our great sport and uh, it's fun just, you know, kind of bantering back and forth. All the best, Coach. All right. Thank you very uh, much, guys. All right, so it's great to get uh, caught up with Coach Mazur. Um, interesting, you're talking about uh, you know, perspective of coaching. He talks, you know, a little bit about you know, Bob Bradley and, and Bruce Arena, and now uh, you know Jesse Marsh, who's a disciple of, of Brad uh, of Bradley. What are your thoughts, guys? Yeah, I mean, I, I he had a very optimistic take, and I was very happy to hear that he that Marsh may be in the running for a Man United position, which I think would be awesome. Um, you know, the sort of gist I was getting from what I'd read and listened to a little bit was the divide at Leipzig seemed to be that he wasn't quite able to take the leap tactically that he needed to take, make that sort of jump in quality, which uh, is not what I wanted to hear. Like, you know, no one wants to be questioned about their tactical acumen, especially in America. And I feel like that's not going to reflect well. Sort of, yeah, on the ethno ethnocentristic trope, I think. Yeah, no, ex exactly. So uh, I wasn't too happy to hear that. But, um, you know, I, yeah, I'm definitely glad that he's got something hopefully lined up. Um, well, and, and to be fair, the owner was actually very complimentary about him, you know, when he was talking about him being dismissed. And it wasn't anything about personality or anything like that. Um, so, look, he's going to be he's going to be fine if the United thing comes through great. And he'll also get another coaching job. I mean, I think it'll be tougher in Europe, but I can definitely get a coaching job at MLS. Yeah, well, let's just bring in Sam Allardyce again. See what happens there. <laughs> All right, so MLS playoffs, uh, the, the Cup, Saturday, December 11th, 3 o'clock uh, on ABC. Yeah. Um, what are you guys thinking? MLS Cup, Portland um, defeated um, Real Salt Lake 2-0. So, I mean, uh, you know, I'm good. I don't know. I just just, just thinking about last week's interview um, with Frank DeLapa and New England. And I didn't get a chance to ask Dave about it, too, but just about – 
playing on hard surfaces, you know, late in the fall. I mean, even we're talking about the same thing with the NCAA if they do the split season. But MLS, um, I like this this format better, having the the you know the the home team um, earn the home team well, as, you, as opposed to a neutral site. But but you could have you know the Super Bowl always generally picks neutral sites in warm weather places, so you could do a rotation and guarantee that there's going to probably going to be better weather than uh, sub-zero. I mean, I don't think Portland's going to be a weather issue. It's probably going to be, my guess would be in the forties no. or whatever, but you know, I think the bigger issue is, you know, Philly with 11 people under COVID protocol and having to field the team against New York city FC. I mean, that alone was a challenge and, and, one. They almost did it. and not, and didn't seem totally fair. I mean, Sam, I know you've got some thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, we should just say, yeah, it's Portland against NYCFC. You got yeah. halfway there, right, right. Kevin. Um, but uh, I, no, no, uh, I was, I was just saying the, the, yeah, the semis there. Um, yeah, no, but, but yeah, I'm 11 players out uh, under COVID protocol for that game. Uh, as Jeff Carlisle wrote in ESPN, uh, the circumstances alone made for a unique matchup. Uh, on <laughs> Saturday, <laughs> there was confirmation that 11 players would be out, and there was concern that the game might devolve into a farce unbecoming of a conference final. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I don't know how this wasn't a farce. I mean, I don't know what options they had, but yeah, I mean, that, that is brutal. Well, I watched the game. The supporters were great. Philly put up a great fight. It was an 88th minute winner. So, I mean, I, I have expected like people from the, you know, local fire department to be coming out in, in Philly union kits or something. Cause I was like, where are you going to find these people? If you're 11 starters, yeah, like when Andorra right. plays or something, Yeah, but they put, they, they, I, I, they put up a great fight. I mean, I got to tell you to be able Good to take NYCFC right down to the wire was pretty impressive. All right. So uh, Garber had some comments, press conference in new England. What are you, yeah. what's, well, what's yeah, going on yeah, there, well, No, he does the state of the, he always does the state of the union from the site of uh, MLS cup. And, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just talking about, you know, the, the growth in the league. And I guess Vegas is now the front runner uh, for the 30th team. It's probably not going to happen until after 2023. Leave but uh, oh, Vegas, please. you know, Vegas was avoided for years by every sports league because of the whole betting thing. And now sports <laughs> leagues can't get in there deep enough. I Follow mean, the money, man. Follow the money. The Vegas Golden Knights, the you know, the previous the Oakland Raiders, everybody's in there. Everybody wants a piece of Vegas and it'll it'll be interesting. Um you know, I just the, the whole gambling thing is a separate we could do a separate show on that. But uh yeah, it is amazing how they've done like every league's done a 180 on whether or not they want to be in Vegas or not. Well, my, uh, my college roommate who turned out to be the head coach at UNLV, Billy Baino, and uh, what a wild town to sort of try to rein in college athletes. It was uh, uh, tough. So I couldn't imagine professional athletes there. A lot of people are going to want to play there. Miami, what's up with Miami? Just- well, Miami's, I mean, Miami's Miami. I mean, they, yeah. you know, I mean, they're not, they're not going away or anything, but they, they, you know, Charlotte's joining our friend, uh, Eric crack hour. We're going to have on next week. Yeah. Uh, they were actually supposed to join the league this year and due to COVID that got pushed back a year. And then St. Louis is following in 2023 and then Vegas. So they'll have 30. And I guess the question to you guys is, do they really need more than 30 teams? And my, you know, Phoenix and San Diego to take it to 32, I'm like 30 is more than enough. 
Well, it seems to it seems to me like the MLS has kind of set their sights on the other big sports leagues in the U.S. as if yeah. it's some like magic number that's existed from the beginning of time. But my <laughs> point is that these leagues have all expanded and are going to continue to expand. So yeah, sure, the MLS could get to thirty and be like, "Hey, we made it." Uh, but you know, in fifteen years, there could be forty NFL teams. There could be forty MLB teams. I mean, you just I don't know. Yeah, whatever the market will bear, I guess. Yeah, I guess. yeah, it's all viability, and it's just the 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 ability of teams to sustain themselves. And obviously, Sam, we're hockey fans. We've seen hockey teams come and go. We've seen football teams get relocated. We've seen basketball teams come and go. You know, I I just think they've done a good job. Uh, I just don't think bigger is necessarily better. I guess that's hey, um, so we got to get moving here. But uh, Sam, I was thinking about you watching uh, Champions League. Uh, you know, Liverpool fielded kind of a, a lot of their youngsters in there. And then they were playing there, a Serie A team. They're at the top of the league. They seem to on. <laughs> did you watch that game? And what were your thoughts on it? Uh, I did. Yeah. So Liverpool won um, 2 1. And it meant that Milan are now out of the out of Champions it. League, out, the of, out, out of Europe in general. Four points. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it's a surprise they didn't go through in the group, considering they had Liverpool and Atletico Madrid, which are the Spanish champions, and Porto are also a really good mm-hmm. team, too. Um, so that wasn't a big surprise that they went out of Europe altogether was was too bad. But, I mean, I, you know, they haven't been in the Champions League since 2013-14, I think. It's been a really long absence, so it's not a huge surprise in that mm-hmm. regard. I mean, I people do, I guess, still think of Milan as kind of like a European giant, but it's really been a while so um there's definitely a disappointment but i didn't think it was a, a shock and, and also and also sam dortmund and barca not going through to the knockout <clears throat> stage i mean barca the writing was on the wall dortmund though i know you have feelings about dortmund which is always kind of the darling of european soccer but they never quite get get over the hump do they well Dor- i mean dortmund had a, a very winnable group right they had besiktas yeah. they had sporting uh, lisman and they had ajax and they didn't even get through um I, I don't know. I mean, you can tell me you guys yeah. watch the Premier League where a lot of these Dortmund guys go, you know, Pulisic, uh, Jaden Sancho is yeah. the latest one in Mania. But like, I, I just don't get why they have this reputation as being like a top club um, in terms of who they produce and how they perform. Um, I'm a little worried in general about the Bundesliga and their quality. I don't, I mean, none of mm-hmm. the teams other than Bayern went through. And the reason I bring that up is because, you know, around the Super League talks, there was all this discussion of like, oh, we need to do the German model. We need to give more power to the fans, et cetera. But uh, if, you know, these teams aren't any good, I don't think it's going to be a really much of a viable well, option. I think the biggest thing is, is, you know, year round competition. I mean, domestic competition that, that kind of, you know, we talked about PSG with that a little bit as well um, years back. So, and, and Bayern is so dominant. I mean, at least in the Premier League, you could say there are three or four teams that are dominant, and then everybody else. But in in the Bundesliga, I mean, it's really pretty much Bayern and everybody else. All right, and then guys, the last thing is, you know, I, I sent out a tweet. I think a, like a week or go now, or probably a full week, but about basically someone said no one can give the women's national team a hard time about beating Thailand so badly because uh, England did it, which, uh, you know, I wrote back that that wouldn't happen in a men's game because about eight guys would be leaving on a stretcher. <laughs> that was happening. Uh, and a bunch of people jumped in and I, you know, uh, so what, what do you guys think? Well, it was that? 20, it was 20, uh, just give the backdrop. I think it was a 20 nil result, wasn't it? 20 nil. It was, it was yeah. England against Latvia and they won 20, yeah. 20 nothing. Yeah. Uh, what is it, up? I mean, who's thinking there? That's just so, uh, you know. 
it serves yeah. it, it doesn't serve a purpose for anybody really and i think maybe at some point you know the the game should honestly just be stopped because what's the what's the point well you can't stop it but you do knock it around and you you know you play possession and uh, you know 20 nothing I'm, I'm telling you but I'm, i i do I'm remember lately I remember coaching a youth game and uh, we were playing against a team that had a kid in goal that just couldn't stop the ball. And so every time we shot on goal, the ball would go in we scored 10 goals. And I remember the opposing coach complained to me and to the league that I'd run up to score. And he said, you should have played keep away. And I said, let me tell you, I said, first of all, you clearly never played game. There's nothing more frustrating than playing against a team that plays keep away, which is more condescending. Yeah. Yeah. Than having somebody, you know, score goals. And by the way, it's not my fault that you have a keeper that can't stop the ball. So, I mean, that's, that's on the youth level, but, but generally I just think professional level, national team level, terrible. have a little respect, have a little, I mean, it happens in hockey, by the way, it happens. Wait, I I don't, I don't understand. It's terrible for the women to run up the score 20 to nothing, but it's fine at youth level to run up the score. No, yeah, no, real. no, no. What I was saying, Sam, was it's it's I'm dealing with eight year old kids. You mm-hmm. can't turn eight year old kids on and off like a spigot. You can't just say don't score anymore. Okay. And by the way, I didn't want them to play play keep away because I thought that to me, that's more that is more humiliating to be on the receiving end. Wow. Have, I disagree with that. I have the I game mean, play up. I disagree with that because I would say just knock it around. Just don't make a big show of it. Like we're just we're not mo- we're not knocking the ball forward. We're not shooting our goals. Like just knock it around. Um, there's ways to take the air out of the ball. Games even, have, I mean, at the or even level, empty your bench. Like or empty I mean, your just, bench. Yeah, I, I but, don't know. I I think there there's bigger like issues at play here. I mean, this ha- this does happen in the men's game. You see, like Sam Marino and Andorra getting beat ten nothing in qualifying. I mean, it does. Happen. Sam, it happens in Olympic hockey, Sam. You get teams sure. beating 15 nothing. I think the bigger issue is just like matching competition. I mean, yes. and in these qualifying things, there should be like a second tier or something so you don't get these ridiculous mismatches. Yeah, right. right. I agree. All right. All right, guys. So uh, what are we up to this weekend? I'm watching the games. You guys be watching the uh, the NCAA finals? We're going to watch the uh, NCAA finals and MLS Cup on Saturday with our friend John Champion and uh, Taylor Twelman on the call. A lot of uh, domestic soccer. Yeah, and, and they're on the big channel. How do you like that? On, oh, on my ABC. goodness. Miracle, miracle. I mean, I think they're on ABC. I should be, uh, I'm assuming they're on ABC, but I could. they could be ESPN, but I thought it was ABC. All right, guys. Well, good stuff. Uh, I'd like to thank our guest, Dave Mazur, head coach of St. John's, uh, for, um, for joining us on Over the Ball today. For Grail Hallett and Sam Griswold, I'm Kevin Flynn, and uh, we'll talk to you next week on OTB.